Hi there, I'm Susie Hatherley. I'm a Principal Project Officer in the Policy and Innovation Division here at the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation. Thanks for joining me for this, the pilot episode of our New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation Limited Edition podcast series. A spin on the idea of a masterclass, we present to you our Master Key Series. I'd like to start by first acknowledging that all of us recording and listening in this virtual space today stand upon the lands of many different nations. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these nations. I pay my humble respect to all Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us today. At the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation, we strive to deliver more keys indoors to provide people with this safe place to call home. Our role is to actively grow and manage the supply of the right types of housing at the right time in the right areas for people in need. We have the important responsibility of managing around 125,000 properties collectively valued at about $50 billion. This is the largest social housing portfolio in Australia. Alongside the delivery of new housing, the maintenance of this enormous portfolio is one of the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation's critical functions. To give you a picture of what this task really involves, more than half of our 670 or so staff work in the Portfolio Management Division. In the last financial year, the division has answered an incredible 640,000 requests taking care of general home maintenance, repairs and upgrades. They spend about $1 million every day on the maintenance of social housing that is managed by the Department of Communities and Justice on our behalf. So to talk us through this vital part of our business, our guest this episode is the person leading it all, Mark Byrne, Head of Portfolio Management. Welcome, Mark. It's really great to have you here today. Hi, Susie. It's great to be here. Thank you. Given that we're all sort of living in lockdown at the moment, and it's certainly a a new way of, of living and working, how are you handling this strange lockdown world we find ourselves in? I'm handling it with uh, COVID kilos. I'm (laughs) I'm very committed and I'm working hard on it. Uh, um, I'm dedicated to the cause. Um, Look, I I really think that when we first entered this, we thought it was a sprint and we really thought that we were going to be in and out of it in a a quick fashion and we were able to absorb the, the restrictions and we were able to handle whatever came our way. But it really feels like a marathon now. Um, almost 18 months into it. Could you tell us a little bit now about you? Well, what's your career background? How did you come to be Head of Portfolio Management and, and what motivates you? Oh, a long journey. I, I joined the public service in 1984, um, 37 years now in the public sector and across a number of agencies. To be honest, I joined so I could get to football training. Uh, flexi time was attractive to leave work at 3.30 and be at Cogra by 5 o'clock. But the football career was fleeting and uh, the public service beckoned and uh, I stayed on and and had great opportunity to work across a number of agencies and have a very varied career within the one employer, which was, you know, very um, exciting. Let's talk now about you and your your team and how you work. 
could you give me a bit of an overview of, of portfolio management? What, what's involved in managing the largest social housing portfolio in Australia with tens of millions of dollars in the budget and 373 staff and contractors? I, I guess a typical day for you and your team, if you will. Yeah, the thing is, it's never a typical day. The one thing that's changed about the public sector in my 37 years is the one thing that you can guarantee on as being stable has changed and no more so in the delivery of maintenance. Um, I've, I've, I've never worked in an area that needed to rely upon structure so much, yet its context was a typical day was change and reactive and having to manage things that come from left field and, you know, a, a positive tenants with COVID trying to do sewer chokes during their self-isolation at the moment, um, having to relocate possums in Erskineville because the regulations require that we can't just move them to a national park. They must be within 100 metres. You know, we build $1,000 possum boxes and get no rent. They're unauthorised occupants. I mean, I don't know why we, we put up with it. But responding to client needs, I mean, people are, are dynamic and they're not generic and we tend to write policy and we tend to look at things from the one lens of the one generic response and yet maintenance and delivering what we deliver, even though it is about footprints and assets and components of assets, it is so varied in what we do. I mean, if you think about our portfolio and understand that that we, we have everything from residential cottages, from bedsits like a motel room through to five-bedroom houses to broad acre estates, both horizontal and vertical, um, that we have heritage properties. We're dealing with lifts. We're dealing with age-old materials that don't pass muster now, asbestos, lead paint. All of the things that we deal with to keep people safe is not just one moment or static moment in time. It's, it's a journey with the asset. It's a journey with DCJs, their tenancy managers. It is such a job in terms of making sure all of those components are at a standard and that the asset is safe for our, our um, clients that have been placed by DCJ in our properties. And then you throw on top a storm event um, and how you then have to, you know, distract resources and distract contractors and there's a time limit. And, and the one thing that has changed is that, that expectation and the framing of expectation has really become a quicker rotation and spiralling into smaller and smaller circles, which mm. is incredibly difficult trying to meet those expectations for people, community and advocates. But what we do on a day, the core function of us is maintenance. You know, we're looking for time, cost and quality. We're looking for value for money in terms of making sure that we can extend the longevity of a public asset. And when you, you think about the, the portfolio, the average age of the portfolio is 41 years, but in 10 years' time, the portfolio without change, 70% of properties will be over 41 years of age. So we're having increasing returning to repairs and maintenance on those properties because obviously the, the younger the property is, the less maintenance you're likely to have to do. And bundle that with a cohort of clients which are more and more from the priority wait list. And by virtue of eligibility for priority, you're going to be, on balance, requiring more support to be able to live independently in those properties. It's reflected in how the asset um, response needs to be to these properties in nowadays. I mean, a lot of people will say 
DCJ or our tenancy managers that deal with the social housing tenants have the social heart and not as strong a commercial mind. And the reverse is said of us. But there's no denying that we do have a social heart and we do have an eye to how we can provide protection and safety and well-being to the tenants. Now, that's, that's not a part-time job because risk management and being able to have the foresight and aptitude to deal with that takes a certain type of person that's not just about training, it's about attitude. Um, and the culture within portfolio management is strong and the people are wonderful. So uh, we're a big business. Well, you could call us a construction company. We, we certainly are doing um, large amounts of money expenditure to maintain a very large portfolio, uh, largest in the Southern Hemisphere, markedly larger than any other state in Australia. And uh, it is a varied job. I was very interested um, when you initially uh, started answering that question, you talked about the balance of having a, a very sort of structured way of working with needing to be flexible and be able to account for very varied needs. What sort of processes and policies do you have in place to facilitate that? It must be incredibly complex. <laughs> yeah, we have a dedicated unit called our Operational Policy and Standards Unit, a, a group of highly talented and experts in terms of monitoring regulatory uh, changes, in terms of looking at the standards that we apply to our properties, uh, equally uh, looking at new materials and new options for how we deliver maintenance in terms of the items that we're using. Um, and they've got a training team attached. So it's it's an ongoing journey to just keep up to date with what we, we're doing. In terms of, of policy, we share a lot of policies with our tenancy management uh collaborators in Department of Communities and Justice, DCJ. We're always looking to review those policies to make them contemporary and to make them more easily applied. So there's a big machinery that goes in behind what we do um, and that's what I talk about, that structure, you know, how we raise orders, how we raise scopes, get quotes, all of those things are a process to which staff are trained and then deliver on a daily basis. Um, and that, that gives us our core so we can then be nimble and adaptable to the variant demands that we get on any given day. That's really interesting. Thank you. And I, I had to laugh when you earlier talked about um, the Erskineville possum boxes as one of the sort of unanticipated uh, variants that need to be, you know, be accommodated in the structure. I actually live in Erskineville and I know the possum box as well. <laughs> I think I've I've seen possums coming and going from and then think that's nice that we're doing that. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm worried about overcrowding eventually, but I'm not sure what to do at that point. But it, it's it's one of those things. It makes you giggle, but um, you know we we're very compliant, and government is held to a higher account in those spaces in terms of of uh, compliance. And uh, we engage with uh, wires and uh, the RSPCA and all of those people when it was brought to our attention, and that was the outcome. Yeah, and I think certainly government agencies are expected to not only um, you know meet standards to a higher account, as you say, but also uh, to lead by example. I mean, that leads me actually to a question that I, I wanted to ask you, which was about how your work benefits the tenants living in our homes, being, as you say, that we do have a, a social core and a heart to what we're doing. What are some of those benefits, do you think? When I talk about this, I always start with the phrase, that um, obtaining a lease into a lack-owned property is not a destination. It's the start of a journey. And I think, unfortunately, that gets lost in terms of the, the funding 
pressures on other agencies that deal with people that are in need that live in public housing or social housing. And my one concern for the years that I've worked in this environment is that we still don't have a holistic approach to the dynamic and unique needs of each household. I feel, you know, very satisfied that we provide housing as a stable foundation for other agencies to engage, that people aren't as homeless, um, even though we see increasing numbers in homelessness numbers. I think what we offer on every day of the week is a roof over 300,000 people's heads, which provides a foundation for them to make a growth in in their own personal development, to engage with support, and ultimately, and it is always the aspirational goal that at some point they would have developed to a point where they would want to leave social housing and move into that, that space which is private ownership or rental where they, they are further empowered and feel further satisfied that they are in control of their lives and not part of a social system. Thank you. That's a really meaningful reflection. It, it really speaks, I think, to what you said earlier about um, being committed to outcomes, not just outputs. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Are there any stories or experiences that have really stuck with you in terms of how the portfolio management division supports outcomes for tenants? There was a time where I had a complaint come through from a woman living in Canamble out in the far west and from her family. And we were, I I couldn't understand why she was upset that we were upgrading her kitchen because everyone wants their kitchen upgraded. That's the contemporary thing. So I was out in Dubbo doing something and I said, well, I'm going to go out to Canamble and, and see her. She'd been living in the house since it was built in the 1940s. Her family had lived in that house all those years. She had raised her children. She, she had lost her husband in that time. She was living alone in a three-bedroom cottage in Canamble. And I walked into her house and uh, you couldn't have found a neater house that had had little or no maintenance done on it in terms of required maintenance where, you know, something had fair wear and tear, all of those things. And the house was just immaculate. It was unbelievable. And you could imagine the kitchen was the old kitchen with the old laminates and it was green and it had the little air vent plastic inserts in the cupboard doors and uh, um, and it was there. And I, and I said, well, it's, it's, it's lovely, but we're happy to upgrade it. We're happy to bring you a new contemporary kitchen. She said, Mark, I don't want it. I said, I know where everything is. I know how I swing to get this from my cupboard and I do this to do that. And she said, I don't want it. And I thought it was the first time I'd ever been told somebody didn't want a new kitchen. But it was genuinely the correct decision because she she was in her 90s and it was and, – and we said, we, we said no, we'd, we'd let it go. And, and um, I heard – Probably a year later, she moved into a nursing home and a year later after that, she passed away. But but for her memories and her attachment to that property, um, the asset outcome was actually to do no maintenance. So that was, that was a good thing. Um, but it was good that, to meet a person of such um, calibre and, and um, virtue in terms of how she'd lived in that house and to sit and hear her stories of what that house meant to her and her family. And it wasn't a, an asset, it was a memory it were a set of memories, a catalogue of memories that she was able to point out as she walked through the home. And that meant a lot to me because it, 
it made it tangible to me what we actually do for people. Um, projects like that, there's so many, Susie. There's just so many. Mm. It comes back to people and, and the collaboration, and, and that's the one thing that, that portfolio management does well and does well with a number of different stakeholders. And, and, and I'm blessed to have a great executive and a great set of, of staff that, that continue to follow that, that sort of path. It's great. That's very, very interesting. And I think there are no doubt countless stories across the portfolio and across the work that you do in, in maintaining that um, really inspiring stories. Mm. And of course, um, our listeners would be aware that the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation is predominantly self-funded. Does mm. that impact the work that you do? What, what does Land and Housing Corporation being self-funded mean in the context of the Portfolio Management Division? So people get into the debate of, are you keeping the properties to standard? Yes, we are actually keeping them above the Residential Tenancies Act standard. In doing that, we are restricted in the money that we have. Like anybody, like like you in your home, me and mine, you, you've got to save up and you've got to work through what's the priorities. And you each year we, we go and do a property assessment survey or an assessment um, condition report on each property. And we determine the, the component life cycle, the point in time as to where it is in terms of complying. You know, is it needing replacement? Is it two years off replacement? Is it five years off replacement? But the thing that people don't understand is that we finance ourselves for our responsive maintenance um, on the back of 38.4% of full market rent. Wow. And even more so than that, people don't understand it. it is that it is black that absorbs the rental subsidies enjoyed by uh, almost 90% of our, our um, clients living in the houses allocated by Department of Communities and Justice. Mm-hmm. So that shortfall, you know, that 62% of full market rent, we take as a, as, as a loss or, or revenue not obtained. And then that money, that 38.4%, predominantly funds our responsive maintenance, that fail and fix, you know, broken window, leaky tap, water leak in roof, you know, those sort of things where you go out and repair something. The capital upgrade is where we go in and replace a component, where we, we replace a kitchen, a bathroom, floor coverings, windows, fences, roofs, but uh, that's sort of full component replacement. Now, that's funded in part by the revenue obtained from the selling down of properties, the disposal of properties that are no longer fit for use. Um, they don't meet where we want to take our asset portfolio under the portfolio strategy, and they fund partly our planned capital program, and they fund new supply. Now, obviously, the more money we could have for new supply, the younger the portfolio would be, the less demands on my maintenance dollars would occur. Mm. But it's a costly exercise to keep properties maintained and extend the longevity of that property, and at the same time, try and reduce the age of the portfolio. So people don't understand that that dilemma or that wicked challenge or a complex problem, mm. um, and that's the challenge in terms of, of the budget. Now, people would say, you know, 400, 400 plus million dollars a year on maintenance, geez, that's a lot of money, but it equates to less than $3,000 a property. The Department of Communities and Justice is, is an agency that you've mentioned a few times, uh, and it's clear that we have an intrinsic link with them. We manage the bricks and mortar. They manage the people who live there, the tenants. Can you talk me through what that partnership means in practice? So, how how do we collaborate with communities and justice on a day to day basis? Yeah, we, we, we look. Department of Communities and Justice have, have been the partner in the delivery of social housing for many many years. 
Um, and, you know, there is a, there's, there's almost a symbiotic relationship there between us and them to deliver the holistic um, provision of, of social housing and, you know, get roofs over people's heads. It's benefit for both of us to collaborate strongly. You just can't do it in isolation of each other. And when isolation occurs, that's where we, where we have service failure or we have communication failure. So it's paramount that we, we collaborate both on the strategic and the operational level. And uh, I've moved somewhat from the operational level, but I, I do know that we regularly have meetings at the local level with our counterparts in DCJ. So um, we need each other to make it happen. Are there any other partners that you collaborate with across sort of industry or the sector uh, or in community to deliver on the portfolio management division's role? Yes, uh, our engagement team collaborate with uh, the staff in local members' offices. Uh, we do our best work in engaging and talking to people than we do in, in providing fact sheets and, and emails and things like that. We've got a dedicated service for MP offices to call for escalated matters straight into our business. Uh, we talk about trends in what's working and not working. We meet regularly with the New South Wales Ombudsman's Office. We provide training and uh, information to their investigative officers. We have meetings directly with the tenant union. We have meetings with uh, different tenant advocacy groups that work with us. Just recently, we've had conversations with three peak bodies in the disability um, area and, and how we can start working on those changes to the disability MODS policy. So uh, there's a range of people we talk to, councils we talk to on a regular basis around different operational issues, uh, fire safety issues, uh, annual fire safety statements, uh, those sorts of things. That's a really helpful overview of just how much information sharing you need to do as well as um, negotiating and you know, collaborating. It's, it's very interesting. Thank you. Do you. I'm just thinking internally, do you have much to do with the other divisions in New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation? Uh, yeah. uh, yes, we do. It's evolving. Look, I support that there's a there's a real need to get new supply into the into the portfolio. Um, I'm certainly encouraged and excited about the portfolio strategy. I'm encouraged about the funding sources being pursued through policy and innovation excited about the new product that deliveries uh, getting out into the portfolio. Um, I think my closest collaboration is with finance and reporting, and that includes the property information unit that uh, holds all the metadata in terms of the tenancies and the property information, because that's obviously interest of interest and operationally supportive of what we do. Um, and of course, the budget reporting and maintaining budgets uh, finance and ourselves, but what's evolving is a stronger relationship with both delivery and and uh, um, policy and innovation. Um, I'm working harder in that space to understand the policy imperatives, you know, because you can, with all of the volume and the balls in the air, gets inwardly focused and think about maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. But um, it's so interesting to understand more around what's happening in the policy position, which will guide our futures into the 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizons. There's a final set of questions that I really wanted to ask you around uh, the future of the portfolio management division. 
what does the future of, of the division look like and, and you know, what, what's your vision for the future? Today, lack tomorrow the world. It will be an empire. <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I, I think the, 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 the future, I think we provide an essential service. Now, uh, whether there is an involvement of community housing provision in, in tenancy management and maintenance provision, it is an asset that's owned by LAC or owned by government. And unless title changes, there is going to be, even in the community housing provider space, a need for regulatory um, support to policy and innovation who, who lead on the, on the leases and arrangements in terms of the asset management arrangements and the performance of the asset management because the leases are 20 years. Um, we want properties that are maintained to a standard during that period so that at any time they're not handed back to us in disrepair. We want to know that the money that is provided to CHPs through rent and the Commonwealth Rent Assistance Opportunities is being optimised for the maintenance and enhancement, development of those those assets that they hold. So I think irrespective of who tenants and manages these properties or who does the maintenance, there is a function in terms of a regulatory role. Now, at this point in time, 105 thousand properties of the 126 sit directly with Department of Communities and Justice and that is direct maintenance delivery. So going forward, there's still going to be a, a hands-on, unless there's a you know, change at cabinet level, there's still going to be a, a direct need to, to manage and provide maintenance. And what we're doing at the moment is endeavouring to change a few things to drive a few things to change the proportion of money that we spend on different aspects of our maintenance. How we deliver the capital program, which gives longevity to properties rather than repairs and responsive works. So spending more or finding ways to drive down responsive costs, not by way of under-servicing, but identifying works at a time where the repairs solve the issue, but equally that we're identifying component replacement work in that process through trend analysis, through business analysis of the maintenance data that comes through and then turn that that work into program component replacement um, capital upgrade that will give longevity to the property. The other thing that we're looking at is, is how we introduce contemporary technology, you know, apps and, and uh, artificial intelligence, things like... Uh, vegetation management. It's wonderful to hear cases of, of innovation like that because, of course, you know, the deep high vision and values encourage us to be daring and creative and, and, and so on. So I think those sorts of innovations are really, really powerful. Yeah, and, and using the, the AI to, to identify, you know, canopy coverage and, and height of trees and where we would target, you know, lopping and pruning so that, you know, you've got this asset management strategy that goes outside in and doesn't just throw paint on mould but actually goes, what's the, the core cause of that and getting back mm. to that and going, okay, mm. trees, vegetation management, roofs and gutters, uh, then get inside the house, ventilation, exhaust fans, all of those sorts of things and be evidence-based in the asset management strategies. Can we just wrap up with a few curly ones, I suppose? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would your family describe what you do for a living? H- how would they rather? How would they describe what you do for a living? My son once said I must go to work and play solitaire every day. Um, <laughs> You've um, got so much time on your hands. I've got so much time on my hands. Um, I think my kids would, would talk about the fact that I'm committed to the outcome and 
you know, I think at times my kids would probably feel they suffered from the hours that I put to the work. Um, when I had the time to be in, in present, you know, in their space when they were doing sport and what have you. So, you know, I coached that many damn teams as they were growing up. Um, now they, they probably appreciate the enormity of, of what we do. Um, and it's not just me doing it. When I say we, it is a we, you know, um, I, I rely so heavily on such an exceptional executive to get the job done. And so, you know, there is that goes to the enormity of the job. There's so many moving pieces and the people that I talk to and the phone calls I have to take and all those sorts of things that I think they get that. I think my dad's pretty proud that, that we're doing something that adds value to people's lives. And um, I think that um, he enjoys the notoriety of knowing which minister is my minister at the time and anything he sees on television ringing me and saying, your minister was just on Mark. And uh, then he wants me to explain it all to him. So I think he enjoys that, that aspect of it. But um, I think I appreciate the enormity of the role that we do. Well, thank you, Mark. That has been really interesting and informative. We appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge today. I'm sure I speak for everyone listening when I say you've provided invaluable insights into your division's work and its successes and challenges in what is a very complex landscape. And that ends our interview with Mark Byrne, Head of Portfolio Management here at the New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation. I'm Susie Hatherley, and thank you for joining me for this pilot episode of our new Master Key podcast series. If you have any questions for Mark or about this podcast, please email lackcommunications at facts.nsw.gov.au and we will follow up with you. Stay up to date on land and housing news on Workplace and thank you again for listening. <laughs>